invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. been working our way through this glorious book of Galatians. We're here in Galatians 3. We'll look at verses 6 through 9. But verse 6 kind of starts mid-sentence. So let's read Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I think it's fair to say that God is looking at each of our lives and could ask the question, do you believe him? Do you believe God? I think it's a fair declaration that this is what God is looking for because when Jesus had calmed the storm and he looked at his disciples, he asked them, where is your faith? Faith is such a huge theme of Scripture, it's really there from start to finish. And yet faith for many people is elusive. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand, in a sense, what faith asks of us. So many people would declare that their relationship with God would be based on something like this. God, if you just get me out of this, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Whatever this sticky situation is, you just want out, and you make a promise to God that if he responds to you, you will respond to him. It basically starts with you making a promise to God, and then has God responding. This is precisely backwards from the way faith actually works. I understand that those prayers are sometimes offered in desperation, and I wouldn't say that God has not heard those prayers and out of grace may actually act, but I would suggest that it gets God backwards and our relationship to him backwards. The way that faith works is that God speaks first. He makes a promise You believe him, and now he sets about fulfilling that promise to you. And you set about living your life in light of the promise that he makes. It's not the other way around. You don't promise to him, and then he responds to your promise. He promises to you, and you respond to his promise. 
That's faith. It starts with God. And then moves to what your response is to His promise. The book of Galatians has the Apostle Paul helping to steer these wayward Galatians to understand the way that faith works, the way that relationship with God works. And he continues to help the Galatians fend off a false gospel that calls on the Galatians to basically add works to their life to receive God's merit and favor. And so Paul sets about to show them the importance of faith over works, grace over human accomplishment, and God's promising over ours. He's just reminded them in the text that we read of the manner of receiving every good thing regarding salvation in our life. Pretty much from start to finish, every good thing that you experience and know about salvation is from God, received by faith, both in the past and in the future. He starts off by asking, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive him by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, by hearing the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for you with faith. And of course, the answer is by faith. You didn't receive the Spirit by working, by doing enough good things to receive him. It was by hearing the gospel message with faith. And we started this journey with the Spirit by faith, and it shall continue on by faith. We've experienced so many things, including sufferings, not because we've kept the law, but because we've heard the gospel and have believed it. We've seen God supply to us over and over all of our needs, not because we've been good enough or we've done works of the law, but because he's been faithful to his promise, and we believe him. One of the problems that the Galatians may have had, one of the problems we might have is to wonder, well, is this faith thing, is this whole dynamic and paradigm of faith real and true? Is this really the way that we are to relate to God? Or is this something new? Is this, in fact, a different gospel that is no gospel at all? This idea that everything that you receive from God is on the basis of faith and not on works. Is that new? Does it distinguish us from the Jews and the saints of the Old Testament who seem to have kept the law and had a relationship with God? Are we in this new category that have no connection to those people who are under the law? Are we of faith of another group? Do we fall into another category from what has been the standard practice for millennia? Are we a sect? Are we a cult? Are we something different? Do we not fall in the mainstream of the way God has worked since he's been really revealing himself to man? How are we to classify ourselves? Are we a new religion? Are we different from the saints of the Old Testament? After all, they were, at least the males, circumcised. They kept the law. They were physically related. So what are we, these people of faith? Well, this portion of Scripture, particularly verses 6 through 9, wants us to know something. It says in verse 7 exactly what it wants you to know. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then it elaborates, verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We're not something new, we're something old, as old as Abraham. 
We fall in line with that. And that's what Paul wants us to know. That's what the Scripture wants us to know. That when you come by faith to Jesus Christ, you're not coming up with something new effectively. You are falling in line with the way God has always worked to declare people righteous and a part of his people. These are massively important ideas that we are to know here. And we'll break them down into two ideas that you are to know. And the first one that you need to know is to know that God counts your faith as righteousness. God counts your faith as righteousness. That's what it says in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Note, first and clearly, it does not say that your faith is righteousness. It doesn't say that they are the same thing. It says that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. He regarded it as, he reckoned it as, he counted it as righteousness. He saw Abraham's faith and he credited to Abraham's account righteousness. But faith is not necessarily a virtue or some good work that you do to show that you are a good person. Faith is, in fact, looking away from yourself to the goodness of somebody else. When you believe the gospel, you find yourself in the company of Abraham. He's questioned the Galatians about how they have received all these good things from God, and the definite conclusion is that they received these things by faith. And Paul wraps that section up with verse 6 by saying that their response of faith to God's promises is the same kind of um, action that Abraham took in response to God's promises. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. This is something massive for the Galatians to understand and for us to understand. Because if you look at the Old Testament, And this is probably what the false teachers would have done among the Galatians. They would have held out to the Galatians, people of the Old Testament, that were heroes of the Old Testament. Moses, David, Daniel, Joseph, and Abraham. And they would have held them out as men who were circumcised, men who kept the law. And the Galatians would have likely heard this teaching and wondering, well, I want to be like them. I want to experience God's favor, God's grace. I want to do what they did. And so they put themselves, they would think of putting themselves under the same law that those men kept. The false teachers could twist the scriptures and make it look good and make it look like the way to be a part of God's people would be to keep God's law. But Paul has a new comparison for them, and a theologically accurate one. After he forces them to conclude that they've received the blessings of salvation by faith alone and not by works of the law, he goes on to make this radical comparison and says, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is shifting things for them. He's saying, do you want to be like those Old Testament saints, particularly like Abraham? Do you want to fall in line with them? Do you want to experience the blessings that they experienced? Then how did they experience them? Well, here's an example for you 
Here's Abraham. And the way he experienced them was by faith. By faith. Abraham is a huge figure in the Old Testament. He kind of kicks off the whole uh, Jewish people. He figures prominently into Jewish history. He starts in Genesis chapter 12 and runs for a number of chapters in Genesis, taking up a huge portion of that book. We need to understand him rightly. The Jewish understanding of Abraham is significant to understanding why it's such a landmark move by Paul to connect Gentiles to Abraham. The Jewish perspective um, could be summarized as this. It's a rabbi, Ben Sirach, who wrote this regarding Abraham. He says, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High. You see what's prominent there? The thing that is prominent about Abraham, yes, he has the status of glorious reputation in the history of the Jews, but the thing that raises him to the level of prominence is that he kept the law of the Most High, according to this one rabbi. The perspective of New Testament Jews regarding Abraham and being connected with him was that they thought that being in the physical descent and lineage of Abraham put them into the favor that Abraham himself had experienced. It was a source of pride. They thought they came from good stock. They could claim, we have Abraham as our father. And through Abraham came Isaac, and through Isaac came Jacob, and through Jacob came the 12 tribes, and they could trace their lineage to one of the 12 tribes, and therefore they would find themselves to have the blood of Abraham running through their veins, and as such physical descendants of Abraham, they would think that they were in good standing with God. Because Abraham was the man who kept the law. John the Baptist doesn't let them off the hook so easily. In Matthew 3, 9, John the Baptist says to people who would put their credentials in their physical descent, he says, quote, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus drives that jab a bit deeper when he's speaking with Jewish people who consider that their status with God is good because they have Abraham as their physical father. Jesus says in John eight thirty seven through 40, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. They thought that the fact that they had Abraham's blood running through their veins was good enough credential before God. Jesus says that they are nothing like Abraham and connects what they should be doing with Abraham's, Abraham is they should be believing what God had said. They're not doing that. And so they're not really of Abraham. 
Some Old Testament passages seem to make it sound like Abraham was a man of obedience rather than a man of faith. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 26, 4 through 5. Genesis 26, God is speaking to Abraham's son Isaac. And in verse 4, he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So as God describes Abraham, he does describe him as a man of obedience. That does not mean he wasn't a man of faith. Look back at Genesis 22. Verses 16 to 18. This is after Abraham made that huge display of obedience when he offered up his son Isaac in response to God's command. Genesis 22, verse 16, God speaks to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So it makes it sound like Abraham is a man of obedience. And you can't get around the fact that he is. Indeed, he did obey God. But what is the fundamental attribute of Abraham that is going to receive, receive God's commendation? We'll look back at Genesis 15. Earlier on in Abraham's life, God spoke to Abraham in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Yes, Abraham was a man of obedience. He followed the Lord, but if you read his story, he certainly was not perfect. But if you keep going back to the instant when his relationship with God is made right, and what God is looking for 
it comes back to that foundation of faith. When God makes this luxurious promise to Abraham, this man who has no heir, a wife who is barren, who is old and has very little prospect that he'll ever have a son that he can pass on his belongings to, God makes this huge promise to him that he will have his own son who will be his heir. And then God makes it bigger by bringing Abram outside, tells him to look up at the stars and see if he can count them, which he can't. And God says, so shall your offspring be. It's a huge promise that Abraham, no matter how much he obeys, could never fulfill on his own. And Abram believed God. And God saw Abram's faith and counted that faith, not any obedience, but that faith, that trust in God's promise as righteousness, as though he had kept to the law, as though he had been obedient, even though he hadn't done any works that would merit any kind of credit to his account. God sees his faith and reckons that as righteousness. And that's the establishment of the relationship that Abraham has with his God. Abraham believed God. It's not always the case that people hear God and hear God's word and believe it. You recall Adam and Eve in the garden. They heard God's word. They heard that they could eat from any tree except for one. And then they heard Satan's word, and they believed Satan's word over God's word. It's not so easy to believe God. Remember Zechariah, told by Gabriel in the temple that his wife would have a son. Old Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, barren. He was told that he would have a son. And Zechariah's response, how shall I know this? The way he was going to know was that he wasn't going to be able to talk for the next nine months. He didn't believe God in that moment. Abraham, Abraham believed God. He showed confidence in the word of God. He had confidence that God would fulfill his promise, even though Abraham really would have no clue how that could ever come about. He believed God. And God reckoned that faith to Abraham as righteousness. Righteousness is living in agreement with God's standards, with his moral standards. All Abraham did was believe that God would do what he said, and God regarded that as Abraham living in agreement with his moral standards. Not that he had, but that God regarded it as such. That's justification. Your relationship to God is built on faith, not on works. You believe God, and God regards it as righteousness to your account. When you believe God, He regards that belief as righteousness. Look back at Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
when you believe God's promise, when you believe his word and what he says, then you are like Abraham. You fall in line with the great history of the men and women of the Old Testament who are regarded as righteous before God, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of their belief in God's promise. So Paul labors to help us understand and help the Galatians understand that when you believe, you fall in line with the history of God's people. And your faith is regarded as righteousness. And that is the foundation of your right relationship with God. It's faith, not works. It results in works. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith works. Abraham's life was one of faith that resulted in works before God. The foundation of his relationship was always that faith in God. So first, know that faith in God's promise is regarded as righteousness. Second truth that you need to know is that God regards those of faith as sons of Abraham. Know that God regards those of faith as sons of Abraham. In verse 7 of Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's as simple as that. You have faith. You have faith in the promise of God. Then you are a son of Abraham. It's such an important truth that Paul makes this an imperative. It's not just a... Uh, kind of a recommendation. He wants the Galatians to absolutely know who are the sons of Abraham. It's an imperative. Do you know? Do you know the truth? Do you understand and grasp the basic elements of the message of Scripture? And do you know that when you encounter a lie, how to combat it with what you know and believe on the basis of truth in Scripture? You have to know this. You can't be indifferent to it. Set your mind and your heart to grasp this, to know this truth, that those of faith are those who are sons of Abraham. What does this mean? Those of faith are those who are sons of Abraham. Who are those of faith? That idea of faith can have so many connotations. You know, a lot of people just think of faith as good in and of itself. Well, you've got to have faith. And they never complete the sentence. That's an incomplete sentence. Faith in what? It doesn't matter if you just have faith. You could have faith in aliens. It doesn't mean it's going to help you with anything. What's the object of your faith is all important. What is biblical faith? What is saving faith? Who are those of faith? Lots of different kinds of faith are brought up in the Bible. One word has a lot of associations. There is a kind of faith in the Scripture that is a dead faith. James 2.26 talks about a dead faith. It's not a living faith. It's a faith that has no connection to works of love. That's not a living faith. There's a kind of faith that James talks about that even the demons have. 
There's a diabolical faith. Even the demons believe that God is one. They believe better than a lot of humans do. That's not saving faith, clearly. 1 Corinthians 15.2 talks about a vain faith. It says there's a faith that does not continue to hold fast to the word preached. So what is biblical faith? What is saving faith? It's a faith that endures, a faith that continues. It's not a one-stop faith. It's not a faith that lasts for one minute or one hour. It's a faith that lasts a lifetime. That's saving faith. Otherwise, it's in vain. Jesus says in Luke 8.13 that there are some who believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. There's a temporary kind of faith. That's not saving faith. That's not biblical faith. But lest we despair, there is a saving faith. There is a saving faith that attends those who are born again. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. There is a saving faith that people possess that brings eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Or again in John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a saving faith that results in justification, a declaration by God that you are righteous. We just read it in Galatians 2.16. We know a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus put such a huge emphasis on faith throughout his ministry. In Matthew 6.30, he refers to those of little faith. In Matthew 8.10, he commends the great faith of the Roman centurion when he seeks the healing of his servant. In Matthew 9.2, he sees the faith of the friends of the paralytic and forgives the paralytic's sins. In Matthew 9.29, he says to the woman who bled for 12 years and came up behind Jesus and touched the cloak of his garment, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Matthew 15, 28, he speaks to the Syrophoenician woman who sought Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter. And Jesus says of her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus places a huge, prominent place to faith. The way that Paul refers to faith here is those who are of faith. It's just significant the way that he refers to it. Those who are of faith, those of faith is an identifying marker of them. It's what marks your relationship to God. Some would say that their relationship to God is marked by what they do for God, how they pray to him, how they serve him, how they give their alms, how they read their Bibles, how they serve in church, and it's just all the emphasis on what they do for God. The kind of people that are sons of Abraham are the kind of people who are marked out by their faith in Christ. It's all through them. It's what marks you. It's a part of all that you do. Trust in God from beginning to end. There's a French chef who makes crepes. You know those thin pancakes that are delicious? And he uses this 
really thin batter, and he's this master chef, and he takes a little bit of this batter, and he pours it into his hot pan in one corner of the pan, and then just with the kind of flick of the wrist, he swirls that batter around the whole pan, so soon the whole pan is covered with this crepe batter. That's the kind of people we are to be, where faith comes into us, and it just kind of rolls around into all parts of our life so that no part of us isn't covered by faith batter. All of us are just covered with faith. We're to be covered with this. It's to be in every part of us. And by the way, this is part of how God works in your life. He brings trials into your life for the testing of your faith. And when you go through a trial, it's almost as if God kind of picks you up and shakes you around a little bit to get faith to roll down into your toes or into your hands or into your brain or into your heart where it needs to be. You are to be people of faith where trust in God dominates the whole of your life. I hope you know a person like that where they're not so much about what they do for God, although they probably have their whole life dominated by service to him. But their whole life is a manifestation of trust in God. They have heard God speak, and they believe his word so intrinsically that the whole of their life is dominated by trust in the living God and his promises to them. It's not really about that person. It's about the God who made wonderful promises. Those types of people, those who are of faith, those who trust God and his promises are the sons of Abraham. It's not those who are merely related to Abraham by blood. It is those who have the faith of Abraham who are the sons of Abraham. These people of faith are the sons of Abraham. To be a son of Abraham, then, is to kind of be like Isaac. As Abraham was about to die, and he prepared to distribute his his inheritance, he gave it all to Isaac. Genesis 25.5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. In our case, we aren't inheriting flocks of sheep or his servants or his tents or his little plot of burial ground. But what we inherit are the spiritual blessings and we share in the same spiritual blessings that Abraham himself had. To be a son of Abraham means that you experience that full and robust relationship with God that Abraham himself had. And you relate to God in the same way that Abraham did, namely by faith. Verse 8 helps us understand that the scripture all along has been foreseeing that those who are going to be sons of Abraham are those who would be relating to God by faith. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. It's a quote from Genesis 12, 3. It's the start of the great story of Abraham, as God, just almost out of nowhere, makes this promise to Abraham that he would bless him. 
And those who blessed him would be blessed, and those who cursed him would be cursed. And then he goes on to say, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul takes this as, a, as the scripture seeing what God is doing now among the Gentiles. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand. Before Jesus Christ came, the scripture preached the good news that those who would receive the blessing of God would be those who receive Christ by faith. The blessing that Abraham experienced and the blessing that we experience as we put our faith in the gospel is justification by faith. That's what the scripture saw. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12. All along, there's been one plan, one expectation, that those who would be justified by God would have that done by faith in him and not by works of the law. Those who are of faith are the ones who are blessed. That's the conclusion of verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Where do you stand in relation to this? It's a pretty simple message. God speaks. You believe what he speaks. And as you believe what he speaks, he regards that as righteousness. It's not too complicated. Abraham believed God. God credited that to him as righteousness. All of a sudden, Abraham's bank account of righteousness was full not because he had any in himself, but because God regarded it to him. God has not told you that your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So what has God told you that you need to believe? What has God spoken? What has he said that he expects you to believe and take him at his word? It's the message of the gospel. And when you hear it, do you hear him speak? And do you believe him? Do you hear him speaking in his son? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. When Jesus speaks, who is the word made flesh? Do you hear the promises of God? Do you hear him speak and believe what he says? Do you hear Christ's message when he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Does that message just kind of swirl around inside all of you and dominate the way that you perceive the whole of your life? Do you believe him? Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you believe him? Do you take him at his word? Jesus said in John 5:24, "Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life." Do you believe him? 
As you think about the judgment, do you put your whole confidence in Jesus Christ, knowing that whoever hears him and believes him who sent him has eternal life and that they do not come into judgment? Or does the horizon of judgment dominate your life? And you live in fear of that day when you stand before God. And you wonder, quaking in your boots, whether you are going to be accepted or condemned. Dear friends, the only way that you will be accepted is if you believe him. Do you trust him? John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was saying that about the Holy Spirit. Do you see Jesus as the fountain of life? The wellspring that you need to come to and drink from. The one who promises and keeps his promise. Do you believe him? John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. Do you believe him when he says this? John fourteen six. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe him? Many a person has come to faith in Jesus Christ because of that verse. As Jesus exclusivizes his salvation and says that there is no one else through whom you can come to, Christ, to the Father. People are confronted with the truth of that verse. And they have to decide, do I believe that or do I believe what the world is saying? And they find Christ's words better than what the world is saying, and they believe him, and guess what they get? They get Christ and the Father in one go of it. Just by believing, accepting his word as true and letting that dominate your life. For this last one, I don't need to add the question on the end. Jesus asks it himself. John eleven twenty five to 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's our life. That's our righteousness. That's our hope. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, when Christ speaks, he speaks so clearly and offers such wonderful news. Lord, our thick and dull hearts can um, overlook what's being offered in these verses. We can be so insensitized to it and that we don't hear what he's saying. So I would ask that if there's anyone who is dull of hearing these things, that you would quicken their ears so that they would hear what Christ has been offering. 
I pray that we all would hear these promises and acknowledge before you that there's nothing that we can do, no work that can be done to merit them, to fulfill them. Father, open our minds to the truth that it's Christ who fulfills them, you who fulfill them, and none other. And regard our faith, Lord, as we trust in you as righteousness. That is our hope before you, for we don't have righteousness in ourselves. Father, get rid of any notion in us that would try to hold out before you any righteousness of our own. It would be regarded as filth before you. And help us cling to Christ. Hold fast to his word. Believe his promises. Hold to that in the day of judgment. Thank you, Lord, that your word speaks to our hearts, instructs us, and gives us hope. Help us to believe it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.